the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Uh, the King James Version says, looking unto, instead of fix your eyes. In the ancient Greek, looking unto Jesus uses a verb that implies a definite looking away from other things and a present looking unto Jesus. So Jesus emphasizes light and darkness do not coexist. All right, one takes over. All right, the writer of Hebrews hints at that, saying our sight line cannot be divided. If you read the book of James, which you could do in probably 20 minutes, James, throughout the letter, is talking about you cannot be friends of the world and friends of God. It, it is a, there is a big divide between what we're resting our eyes on and between Jesus and everything else. Another way of saying this is simply replace the bad with the good. So in regards to what we see, view, and take in with our eyes, that's the topic we're looking at today. And this is not a recent issue. The obsession of replacing God with images, with idols, it's ancient. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, <clears throat> there were sculptured pillars, there were um, sacred stones, there were snakes, there, was, uh, there were bulls, and many more uh, of people just grabbing a hold of an image and beginning to worship it and use it as a replacement to God. It's got a long and storied history. And now in the age of tech, we have more access to images than we've ever had in our lives. More ability to see things than ever before. It, it, we, can, we can have images and video and sites just cascading through our eyes and into our minds and hearts to a point of where it's overwhelming. So with the topic today of holy sight, we're going to kind of do that whole like bad news first, good news second thing. If you guys, so bear with me here as we, let's talk about the bad. Like what what are the images? What are the sights that damage? Why are they bad? What are we seeing? What are we taking in? What kind of damage can it do? We can't do an exhaustive study on this, but we can talk about a few. I think obvious, they're obvious, but they're really prevalent and really poisonous. Um, the, the overarching truth of unholy sights is that damaging images and sights write a false narrative. They present a false reality. The more we see it, the more we believe it because we are living in the age of reason. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to only believe what we can see. So therefore, our eyes are maybe even more potent in regards to shaping our minds and our hearts than they have ever been before, or at least particularly over the last few hundred years um, in the age of reason. The danger of a false narrative is, is that we can begin to very quickly live a lie. Like the more we buy into it, the more we view it as reality and build it as habit. So one particular example is I went to a concert recently. Concerts are not my thing for a number of reasons. Um, I went, and the two groups that I saw were incredibly talented. It was Haim, uh, who I'd never heard of until Carrie introduced me to them, and now I know like two of their songs, and they're good. I was in Safeway the other day, and I heard a song. I'm like, that's Haim. I know this now. I know that song. So they're really, they were really talented. The opening act, I have no idea what her name was. I can't remember. But had anybody seen that commercial, the direct TV commercial where the lady's chucking stuff out the window and the guy's down there like, what are you doing? It's the song that's playing in that commercial. So there you go. Just YouTube that commercial later and you can figure out. What's her name? Lizzo. Incredibly talented. Uh, the, you know, the, the, it was an all-female group, phenomenal voices. 
like I said, I don't know any of their songs, but I was just mesmerized by how talented they were. Unfortunately, I was distracted by my eyes because the dress of the group and the lyrics and the in-between-the-songs banter that they were having was so overly sexualized, it was disturbing to me. And it was being touted, and, and this is, again, this is obviously subjective in my opinion, uh, it was being touted as feminism. And I was like, why, are, why does self-objectification have anything to do with feminism? I couldn't figure that out. Um, as I saw this and I, I was th- I was literally thinking, and now I really am like aging myself here. I might've been the oldest guy in the room, who knows? But I was looking at this and I was thinking, what if there's some young women in here who are looking at them? Obviously they probably are as examples and they're combining feminism, which the world needs with sexual objectification. And I'm like, the two don't mix and they shouldn't mix, but people are seeing this and their minds and their hearts are being formed by a false narrative. So that was one uh, very specific example that I witnessed recently, but it's everywhere. I mean, the most popular, the most prevalent, the most poisonous example would be pornography. I mean, it's everywhere, and it is, it is gaining steam more and more as images and video of pornography present a false narrative of sexual union, sexual intercourse, and, you know, intimacy. Um, I mean, the chemical and emotional and biological damage that pornography can have is well documented. So I'm not going to go through all the stats. They're out there. It's obvious. People don't care. People keep plowing through it, plowing into it, deep, deep diving into it. And it's on both, the, the damage is being done on both sides of the screen. You know, the, the people that are participating in that um, have a long history of sexual abuse. I mean, most of the actors or actresses in that, um, we've probably all witnessed it either at least once or, or rhythmically. So we all are very aware of pornography. And um, there's also a seemingly like benign examples of the images that we take in, like just entertainment in general. Um, just the act of viewing images and videos to entertain ourselves can be damaging. It's not necessarily damaging all the time. I'm not like just saying you should stop watching Netflix, stop watching Prime. Like we, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we have to be wary of what we're taking in and why we're taking it in and how it's forming our minds and our hearts. And I think Henry Nouwen gives a pretty good quote that can help us define um, how we're using entertainment. He says, images and video can be ways to run away from ourselves and turn life into a long entertainment. The word entertainment is important to understand. It means literally to keep, tamed from the Latin tenir, to keep someone in between, enter. Entertainment is everything that gets and keeps our mind away from things that are hard to face. Entertainment keeps us distracted, excited, or in suspense. It's often good for us, giving us an evening or a day off from our worries and fears. But when we start living life as entertainment, we lose touch with our souls and become little more than spectators in a lifelong show. I mean, visual entertainment can create habits of numbing our mind and escaping reality. I mean, virtual reality is the most obvious example of that as it continues to climb. I don't know if we're headed towards like Ready Player One status, but if you've seen that movie, you're like, that's crazy virtual reality. That like entertainment overload, obviously bad, uh, where people are living their entire lives in virtual reality. Um, But again, if we're just viewing entertainment to numb ourselves and escape reality through visual engagement, we have to be careful that we're not living a lie. Are we living 
in reality or are we escaping reality? And the more we escape reality, the more we build that habit into our lives, it's up to, we have to discern, like, is this healthy for me to continue to do this? What is this doing to my mind and my heart? Um, I wish I could speak to you on this topic as an expert. Uh, I do not. I speak to you on this topic as someone who struggles deeply with visual temptation, particularly in the sexual area. Like I mentioned pornography earlier. Um, fortunately, I have felt Christ's healing in that area over the last years, particularly the last five years, strengthening me, like opening up wounds and, and getting them air. And, and I can feel the... Um, the great physician working in that area of my life. But there are moments of weakness. It's really easy for me to recall an image I've seen that's pornographic or nature. And the access that we have is, like I said, it's, there's no precedent in history. We have access to whatever we want, whenever we want in regards to our sight. When I recall or when I see images that damage my mind and heart, particularly in that, in that sexual way, um, I notice the effects on me immediately now. Like I've gotten to the point of where I feel like God has given me the discernment um, to notice what kind of impact this poison has on me when I see it. Um, I've noticed that when I when I recall it or or see something that sparks um, what I would say like a poisonous thought or or an impact in my heart, uh, it pours fuel on the fire of my brokenness. All right, it, my brokenness or my, my weakness in that area might be a little flame, and it instantly becomes an inferno when that happens. So, for example, a naturally, for a naturally impatient person like myself, I become really impatient with everybody and everything immediately. Like, I just get grouchy. I get bossy. It's just an immediate impact. Whatever, so you think about whatever you're weak in, in like engaging in that activity, it's going to make you weaker and it's going to be quick because, um, I mean, maybe it's because visual sexual stimulation through the internet can be instant, which is a lie. I mean, true sexual intimacy, uh, it's not instant. It takes work. And it's, and it's not just about like sexual impatience. It's about everyone and everything. Like the lie is not compartmentalized to that particular topic. All right. It, it, it invades everything. Um, it can also, train me to escape reality rather than sit still long enough to let the Holy Spirit like work inside of me. I look outside for numbness and for escape. So what you take in visually can poison you and don't think the damage is limited to just you. It will poison everything, every relationship you have. So if that's the bad, what's the good? I go, okay, I am weak in that area. I have been poisoned with fill in the blank, whatever it may be that I mentioned, or maybe it's an example of you can think of that I haven't mentioned, but something that's formed your mind and your heart and you can feel the conviction. Like you can feel, it's really easy to feel shameful, which is not holy. What God is saying is let me in there. I want to heal that. I want to get in there. I want you to invite me in and not handle it yourself. So what's the good news? As Hebrews 22, 22 pointed out, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the good news. So what does that look like? What does it look like for when we fix our eyes on Jesus to experience restoration and healing and holiness? Um, I'm going to give you a few kind of, again, just some experiences like how do we do that? How do we become holy? I'll give you a few practices and ideas. 
a few years ago, I really felt God calling me to lean hard into that, um, into that area of healing. <clears throat> and I'd grown, I had just grown exhausted and weary of trying to manage my own sin, manage my own brokenness, um, you know, putting rules and parameters around it. Like legalism just doesn't work. And it's our natural tendency to do that way, to be our own God. Like we just have pride. We don't want anybody else to fix it. We want to fix it. Um, if we shift our eyes from these outside images and we just look within ourselves, like meditation, quiet time, self-reflection, plans for improvement, these are all good things as long as you're not the master of them. Like you've got, you can't just look in yourself. You've got to allow God in. You've got to let him because you aren't God. You can't make yourself holy. It's not possible. I've tried. It doesn't work. It's exhausting. You feel like a failure. So rather than just looking in yourself, allow the Holy Spirit to look in. So the healing for me began when I started letting go of control. And I, I know there was this program I was looking at as I was actually thinking about like, how could this be a part of Restore Church? And I was like, wait a second, I can't ask people to be a part of this program until I go through it. It's called Living Waters. And it was quite a commitment. It was 90 minute drive each way. So three-hour drive, round trip, every Thursday night for nine months, I did that. And I, I leaned in, and it was different than anything I'd ever experienced before. Part of it was really uncomfortable. And a lot of it was really beautiful and healing and restorative. God brought two men into my life that became what I feel like were shepherds for me as I walked through this hell who would pray over me, like literally like lay hands on me and pray over me like weekly, and then it was monthly, and we still get together uh, and do this, but it was just, it was the first move I had really made in stopping, like, managing it, and actually, like, giving it over to God, and seeing how he might heal, and purify, and make me holy, and what I would advise you to do is you need to get drastic, right? this can't just be, like, a subtle shift, this is, like, detox time, I mean, it, it, you're cutting things off, uh, a shift from unholy images to the image of Christ, that's a drastic move, theologically, and it's going to feel even more drastic when it comes to the methods and the movements that you make. It's going to require sacrifice, a willingness to step out of your comfort zone and routine. And while we pursue healing, while I did it, to help my eyes kind of stay fixed on Jesus, I ramped up my efforts to kind of keep my eyes on him. So kind of like a horse with blinders on, <clears throat> I created pathways and protections that would help me, almost force me, to keep my eyes on him. The reason being, not because... I wanted to be legalistic. What I wanted to do was to create pathways that would prevent further wounding because I'd kind of opened up all this stuff. You ever do that? Like, have you ever confessed or just opened up about something deeply embarrassing or personal or painful? And you're kind of like, it, it's really nerve wracking because you wonder how a person's going to respond to it. It wouldn't feel good if they just attacked you. If you opened up a wound and someone just started poking in it, and like laying on, oh yeah, you should feel guilty for that. And here's why. And they just start listing all the reasons. I've had that happen to me. You probably have too. doesn't feel good. So when you open up this wound, it's like, okay, how can I keep this from getting infected or for someone sticking their finger in it? And so that's what the protections were for. So here are the protections. I'm not saying you, sh you should do these. I highly recommend them. And I think you should even expand on them. Find what works for you. I deleted the internet and all social media and YouTube from my phone. Like I am... My phone looks smart. It's dumb. All right, it doesn't do anything. It I can text. I can look at movie times if I want to go see a movie, and I can Google Map. You got to have Google Map on the phone. Don't get rid of that. 
It's a lifesaver. That's what I got. I don't know the password to our family iTunes account. So I literally cannot download anything unless I hand my phone to Carrie. I just don't want it. And, it's, and the other awesome thing about not having the internet on your phone is that people automatically assume you do. And I love saying, like, I don't have the internet on my phone. And, like, let them figure out the problem instead of me having to do it. Like, oh, I don't have the internet, so you'll have to figure it out. It's fantastic. It's very freeing. I have accountability software on my computer. Everything I look at on my computer once a week, an entire history of that is sent to Carrie. She knows everything that I look at. I avoid movies and shows that show sexual images. Um, it may be even, maybe it's violence for you. You like can't handle that for me. It's, it's in particular, it's sexual images. I don't see them. I'm not interested. My mind and heart can't take it. It just doesn't do, it, it doesn't do me any good. Uh, I also, I mean, completely different example. I also avoid documentaries. Um, most of them are really sad and involve a lot of injustice and my heart cannot take very much injustice because I just get angry and I want to hurt people and yell at people. And I don't have holy reactions to injustice. Like I was playing golf with Ian Howard today. And there's this group of four people that was not letting anybody play through. And they're stacking up in front of us. Everybody else is moaning the ground. I called the golf course. I'm like, I'm on number 16. Get these guys out of our way. Like I can't, I don't have much patience for injustice. So I have to be careful with what I take and what I view. So like what's happening right now at the border where ICE is taking kids away from their parents, which is bullshit. I can't handle that stuff. I saw one image of, at the top of our article, and I was like, that's enough. I can't handle any more of this stuff. So you have to, you have to know what's going to do damage to your mind and heart and build pathways and protections around that. So that's me. I just can't see certain stuff without it doing unholy things to me. I would encourage you to put protections in. Get proactive. Think about how you're wired, where you're weak, you know, what forms your mind and heart, and, and build those protections in place while you invite God deep into the wound. You can't just do one without the other. You have to do both. You've got to create the protections and the pathways, and you have to allow God to explore the depths of your mind and your heart to see what he wants to do. So I mentioned living waters. That was really powerful for me. Uh, I attended a prayer school with a well-known pastor. You've probably heard me quote numerous times in here, Brian Zond, which laid the tracks for me on how to, on liturgical prayer and contemplative prayer, two things I'd never heard of, never practiced. It was kind of like laying the pathways for how, um, how to pray. Uh, I read a book on listening and healing prayer. It's about as charismatic as I've ever gotten, and it was in, it, phenomenal. Like, I started doing this. And God spoke to me in really intimate and powerful ways through doing that. I had two friends praying over me routinely. Uh, I tried fasting more often than I ever have. I've met with a Christian counselor for a number of years. I just recently started meeting with a, an Ignatian spiritual director. Like, I'm literally willing to try anything. Like, I'll do anything to engage in, in, in inv inviting the Holy Spirit to work in me. I read scripture, and I've recently started. I've never done this before. I just recently started doing Lectio Divina, which if you Google it, it's really simple, really powerful exercise on reading scripture. I've explored Christian contemplatives constantly, like Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen, who you're probably sick of hearing me quote all the time whenever I preach, but I can't get enough of them. I'm gobbling down like their, their writings and their books. I confess sin a whole lot more than I used to. Not as much as I should, but I do it a whole lot more than I used to. And there's a release and a freedom and a humbleness that comes as you release this stuff and you open your wounds to God. If you want 
Christ's power to work in you and heal you, you got to let him explore. You have to be vulnerable. You have to. And to do that, studying and trying ancient Christian traditions and practices will promote healing and restoration and ultimately what we want, holiness. That's what we want. We want to be like him. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer summed it up really well. He said, Christ's followers always have his image before their eyes. And in its light, all other images are screened from their sight. It penetrates into the depths of their being, fills them, and makes them more and more like their master. The image of Jesus Christ impresses itself in daily communion on the image of the disciple. That image has the power to transform lives. And if we surrender ourselves utterly to him, we cannot help bearing his image ourselves. We become the sons and daughters of God. This is what we mean when we speak of Christ dwelling in our hearts. We need to turn away from the sights that wound and turn our sights towards what heals, the sight that makes us like him, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear your words this morning in Scripture, uh, uh, I I pray that we would respond. I pray that we would really consider what what does it mean to have holy sight? What would it look like to put in action fixing our eyes on you? God, I pray that we would individually and as a church be people that are just constantly captivated by your image that we would imagine you on the cross, the unbelievable power that came from that moment and that image. I pray that we would be looking up on that right now. We'd see what you're willing to do for the people that you love. I pray that you would take that image and you would plant it deep in our minds and our hearts, that that would be one of those images that won't escape us. God, I pray it haunts us until we're willing to respond to it. And I pray as we respond to it, as we continually respond to it as a church, and as we respond to it individually, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage and and perseverance to continue to lean into it, to have the the discipline to to, uh, protect ourselves and to put protections in and and pathways that are going to keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray that we would be, that we would get rid of the, arrogance and the pride and just be allow you in that we would be vulnerable and we would open ourselves to you that you would heal and restore it's in jesus name i pray amen